And I'm going to begin with a statement that, or a phrase that used to be quite common, at least in my circles, I think in the 90s, but I haven't been hearing it for a long time. Maybe some of you remember. The mother of all, remember when everyone was saying that? We don't hear it so much now, but, but it, w- it would be something like this. The mother of all garage sales, or uh, the mother of all birthday parties, or maybe um, the mother of all wipeouts. In fact, this phrase was common enough that it made its way into some English dictionaries. And in, in uh, the Collins English Dictionary, it's, uh, it's described this way. Um, something regarded as the biggest, most impressive, or most important of its kind, often humorously. So um, I was thinking about this phrase uh, because I was thinking about an illustration that I've used here before and will be familiar to many of you and fits well with what I want to say this morning. And I was trying to think of another way to say it, and I was thinking of mother of all, and I thought, that doesn't quite fit, but it's fun to think about for a few minutes. Uh, But the the illustration that I've used before, and that I'll just remind you of today, it uh, it comes from the interior of British Columbia. If you go to Kamloops, and then you drive north, you'll go through a 100-mile house, and then you'll come to a 150-mile house, and if you turn off to the east, uh, you'll drive through, from 150-mile house, you'll drive through Dugan Lake, and then through the little hamlet of Horsefly, and you'll end up at Likely, B.C. And you might wonder, why did they name this place Likely? And there's a reason for that. I'll get to that in a minute. Now, if you go back to 150-mile house and continue north to Quenelle, and then turn off towards the east off the main highway. You'll drive through Cold Spring House, and then Beaver House Pass, and then Stanley and Wells, and at the very end of the road, you'll come to Barkerville. And some of you know what I'm talking about because you've been to these places, and some of you don't, but uh, on the map it looks like this, and there's a reason for this. You see, in the early days... Uh, people panned for gold around Vancouver. And they found in the silt of the Fraser River many flecks, little tiny shiny flecks of gold. And what they knew is if there's gold in the sediment at the mouth of the river, then somewhere upriver there's large deposits of gold that are being eroded and making those little flecks that come down the river. And so, they, so they, the prospectors travel up the river, and whenever they come to a creek or a tributary that flows into the Fraser, they go up that creek and they pan for gold. And if they find no gold in the tributary, then they know that the mother load is further upstream. So they go further upstream, and they follow all the tributaries. And what happens, what happened in this case, back in, in those early days, is um, th- they, they discovered that this river system here... And this river system here had gold in them, but this did not. So what that means is the mother load is somewhere here, between Barkerville and Likely. And so they named the place Likely. The mother load is likely just north of here in these hills. And you know that also because if you draw a line this way, the water here and here flows the other direction. And there's not gold in those streams. So you know it's got to be here. It's got to be there. There's no other option. All the little flecks in all the downstream areas come out of some deposits in that area. 
Now, in the days of the gold rush, Barkerville and Likely were both towns bigger than Vancouver at the time. So a lot of gold was coming out of that area. They dug trenches, they dug holes, they dug up the rivers. You can go up there and see all the disturbance that they did by hand and pickaxe. It's quite impressive. Some people think that the mother load was all taken out. And uh, other people think that uh, it's still there somewhere, the big deposit that it all comes from. There's still prospectors go up there every summer and search for that, that treasure. And so... Um, that's just a concept, an idea. Stick it in your back pocket. In a few minutes, um, we'll pull it out again, and, and maybe it will help us understand uh, something here from God's Word. So we want to talk this morning about um, fulfilled. Crossing between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and thinking about how the New Testament in Jesus Christ fulfills many things in the Old Testament. And We looked last week at the law, we saw that Jesus Christ is our faithful high priest, and uh, we look this week then at the prophets. Jesus fulfills the prophets. And um, next week we'll look at Jesus fulfills the writing together with our communion service, and uh, then we'll be right into the Christmas season and, and Christmas themes and preparing to enter the New Testament in the new year. Now, today... Uh, we're going to look at this, as I said. Old, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophets. I've labeled it the truthful prophet. Uh, there's other adjectives that could be used, but that's the one I've chosen this morning. Jesus is our truthful prophet. So I want to think back now to mix, mix my illustrations all up so you get confused maybe, but you remember last week I talked about the mosaic. The art form that was very common in the early church uh, and in those days, the, the, the mosaic art form. And I want you to just imagine that you're a first century believer. I don't, you, you live in a town like Corinth or Ephesus or, or one of those places and the Apostle Paul has come to town. And you went to the lectures and you heard the message and you believed that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. You put your faith in him and yourself and a little group of other believers are meeting in your home and their home and, and seeking to be followers of Jesus. Now in your home, in your family, you have a prized possession. You have in the corner of the room, you have a large, colorful glazed pot, a pitcher of some sort. It's, it's the most expensive thing you have. All of your other pots are just bare clay. They haven't been colored and glazed and made beautiful. They're useful, but they're not beautiful. But this one pot was given to you, and it's your prized possession. It sits there in the corner, and it holds the fragrant oil. And sometimes, on special occasions, you bring that oil out and put it in a lamp in the evening, and you can stay up a little later with the light, and it smells nice. And that's just kind of a special thing you have. But then one day, when the kids are roughhousing around, you guess what happens? The pot gets knocked over, and it shatters into a hundred pieces. Well, there's sadness in the house. Proper discipline is given out. But then you take and you begin to pick up all those little shards of the pot. You turn them all over so you can see the colored glazed side, and you sort them into, uh, into color groups. And you take the word that you all know, fish, on the top there. In Greek, it's spelled ichthys. And the, an acronym to remember the gospel is the first letter of each 
of the, 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 a word from the first letter of each of the letters in the word fish. Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. The gospel. This is what we believe. So you write that up on the wall. You take a charcoal from the fire and you write that up on the wall. And then underneath that, you draw the outline of a fish. And then you and your children take the pieces of that precious pot that you could never replace because you can't afford to, and you start placing them. You take a little bit of a little bit of uh, of mud and a little bit of uh, calcium or something, and you make a mortar and you put them up there on the wall, and you have this family project, and you everyone participates, and everyone puts up some pieces and decides where they go, and you make this fish on your wall to remind you of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason I'm using the, the illustration of the mosaic is because this is kind of what I've been trying to do as we go through each of the books of the Bible. I can't possibly bring forth all the truths in those books just in one message for each book. But what I'm trying to do is draw the outline. And then I show you where a few pieces go, and then even the children can pick up pieces and put them on the, on the picture and figure out where they go. And when you're in your own devotions, when you're in your discipleship groups, when you're meeting with someone for coffee and you open the Bible and you discuss things and you find a treasure, you find a beautiful piece of truth in God's Word and you can fit it in the picture because it's there. The outline is clear and the kind of general places are there. And what I also like about this illustration is that it allows us some leeway. For example, you might put a piece up And then as you put more pieces in the right places, you realize, oh, that one's out of sync. It's not the right piece in the right place. So you take a chisel, you chip it off, and you put it in the right place. You're allowed to make some mistakes. But if you know the outline, and if you know the general color pattern, you can work at it. We can work at it together. We can have discussions about where they go and how they fit together. Everyone from the smallest children to the PhDs can work on this project together. And we all sometimes get the pieces in the wrong place. I know I have. Just the other day, I was talking on the phone with my daughter and, and, and uh, talking about some of the places, times I put pieces in the wrong places. And, uh, and we've had to move them. So that's, that's just the picture. I, I hope that's helpful to you. I, I know it is for me. So we're going to look at this. We're going to draw some more of the outline and place a few pieces having to do with Jesus fulfilling the prophets. Now when we get to this topic, what I've normally done, what I've done here, what you've probably heard other preachers do, is put up a chart something like this, and, and you can't read it, and that's on purpose. But if you could, you would see that there's 47 Old Testament passages, verses, references, And the corresponding New Testament reference that shows that that prophecy from the Old Testament was fulfilled in the New Testament. And uh, that chart has 47. And uh, there's there's many, many more that are just uh, allusions and phrases and stuff like that 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 fall into this pattern. And we could go through that. We've done that before, but that's not what I want to do this morning. So that's valuable. That's a a good... that, That finds many pieces that go on the mosaic that way, but we're going to look at some other things this morning. I want to ask the question, what did the people who sat with Jesus on the side of the hill and ate miraculous bread and fish, what did they talk about? When Jesus was gone and they were back in their homes, what were they conversing about? What did uh, the people who 
who were on the side of the hill when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are persecuted, and they heard all that message. What did they talk about afterwards? What did the people who witnessed the blind man gaining their sight and the lepers uh, becoming healed and the, and the lame people walking, what did they talk about when they talked about Jesus? And so we, we get a lot of this from the Gospels. And we start here in John chapter 1, and we're going to talk about what John said to get us into this question. This, is what, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John, Who are you? They came right out and said, He came right out and said, I am not the Messiah. Well then, who are you? They asked. Are you Elijah? No, he replied. Are you the prophet we are expecting? And that's the key question there. They asked him, are you Elijah? Are you a prophet? He said, no. Well, then are you the prophet that we're expecting? And John said, no. Who are you then? We need an answer for those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am, the, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. So essentially what he's saying is, I'm not the prophet, but I'm clearing the way, I'm preparing the way for the prophet that you speak of. So that's how Jesus is introduced to the community. And uh, Jesus himself uh, follows a similar thing when he begins. In Matthew chapter 13, we read this. Jesus told them, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own family. So he did only a few miracles there because of their unbelief. Now, he doesn't come right out and say it, but people who heard that must have begun to talk behind his back. Did he just say he's a prophet? What was that? What does that mean? So I'm just going to read, out of context, just little snippets of conversation uh, that the gospel shows to us. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. Then the dead boy sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother, Great fear swept the crowd, and they praised God, saying, A mighty prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people today. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, You're right, you don't have a husband, for you have five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth, sir, the woman said. You must be a prophet. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. When the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, Surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others said, But he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? So you get a sense of the buzz. You get a sense of the background noise around Jesus' ministry. Is this the prophet? Is he a prophet? No, he couldn't be a prophet. He's not from a good place. Well, what about these miracles he did? He must be a prophet. And, and the conversations, I think, were wild and crazy, and everyone was wondering, is he a prophet? Is he the prophet? What's going on here with this man, Jesus? 
Why were they asking this question? Why was it so important to them? A pressing conversation. Everyone wanted the answer from the Pharisees and from the scribes and from the leaders in the temple to the beggars on the street. Everyone was talking about this question. Is he the prophet? Is this the prophet? So why were they doing that? Why were they having this conversation? Well, to do that, we have to go back to the mosaic, as you were. Um, There's a story in the Old Testament that you all know very well, the Exodus. And it kind of produces one of these bold outlines that many stories, we have our understanding by fitting them in there. Even just last week when I talked about Jesus as the high priest, we were, we were fitting pieces from the Gospels into this outline that the Exodus story gives us and understanding where they fit and how it all, what it all means. And so we go back to this story today. And we, we find uh, the general outline is easy to understand. We know it from Sunday school days. The people of God's promise were slaves in Egypt. He, he, he came in a burning bush to Moses. Moses goes to Egypt, there's plagues, there's the Passover, the angel of death, and the, and the blood on the, on the uh, doorposts. Then they're, they're cast out of Egypt, they go through the Red Sea like a baptism. And then in the wilderness, God provides food and water. And then they come to Mount Sinai. That's the outline. And we get to put the colored pieces that we find all over in the Bible into that outline. The story of salvation. How does God save? At that moment in time, when God came down onto the mountain, the people were assembled around the mountain, and God spoke to them directly. And the people said, we don't like this arrangement. We would prefer if you just speak to Moses, and then Moses tells us your truths. And God relented, and that's the relationship that was set up. Moses, in his final sermon, before, he, uh, before he's about to die and the people are gonna, the leadership is going to go to Joshua, Moses talks about this time and he reminds the people, and this is how he says it. I've got to get it. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your own people. You must listen to him, for this is what you asked the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see his great fire any more, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will rise up from from them a prophet like you from among their people, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words, and the prophet speaks in my name. So what is this set up? Moses is the first prophet. Abraham had visitations of angels and visions of God. Joseph had dreams. The people of God prior to this spoke directly with God in various ways. And God comes now to the assembly of the people to speak directly with them, to have that kind of direct relationship, and they reject that offer. And so God sets up a prophet, Moses, 
God will speak directly to Moses, and then Moses will relay the truth of God to the people. That's what a prophet is. That's what a prophet does. That's what all the prophets did. But Moses reminds them of a promise. I will raise up from them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among the people, who, and I will put my words in his mouth. So by the time Jesus came around, the people of God had come to the realization that none of these other prophets were that prophet that Moses spoke of. They had come to the realization that each of these other prophets that we have in the Old Testament, they weren't saying new things so much. They were taking what God had revealed to Moses and applying it to the present situation. They They were hearing from God directly how does God's law affect the people here today and what they're doing. They were, they were like those flecks of gold in the stream, all muddled up in the mud and rocks of everyday life. And here's a shiny bit of God's truth that will help you to live better. But the people, when Jesus came, had realized none of those prophets were the prophet. None of them were the one that would bring things back to before Moses where you could speak directly with God. None of them were that prophet. And so they were waiting in expectation for that prophet. Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father. He doesn't use the word prophet in this passage, but he describes a situation that's not unlike Moses. Then Jesus cried out, Those who believe in me do not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When they look at me, they see the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for those who hear my words, but do not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for those who reject me and do not accept my my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his commands lead to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father told me to say. He's describing himself as a prophet. The Father speaks to me, tells me his truth, and then I relay it to you. That's the role of a prophet. So Jesus is describing himself this way, but now I have a confession. Nothing I'm saying this morning is my own. It's plagiarism. I'm plagiarizing from Acts chapter 3, the sermon that the Apostle Peter spoke early on after Jesus' resurrection. He's trying to describe and, and help us to understand who Jesus is. And here's what he says. Here's what he preaches. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets 
Moses said, and here Peter's quoting the verses I just read from Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will rise up for you, a prophet like me from among your very own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. And Peter is saying, Jesus is that prophet. Jesus is the one. Moses was the first prophet, and Jesus is the last prophet. Because after Jesus, you don't need the intermediary anymore. You don't need someone to hear directly from God in your place and then tell you the truth. After Jesus, you're back to before the people rejected God's offer to speak directly to his people. This is the one that Moses spoke of. A prophet will come. Or am I? Let's read the rest of the passage. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your forefathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. So Peter is saying, or I I should turn that around. I'm only just saying what Peter said. All the prophets, he says, were speaking about Jesus. From Moses onwards, they were all pointing the way to the time when the, the promise to Abraham that God would speak directly with all people, not just his chosen people, the Jewish nation, but all people on earth, the blessing would come to all nations. And that time has come. The questions you were asking, is this the one? Yes, Peter says to the crowds who've been having these discussions behind Jesus' back for three years. Yes, this is the one. This is the prophet. He's not a prophet like all those little flecks of gold. He's, he's, the, uh, he's the source. Now, I want to um, just pick up a few more pieces without ex- explaining them very far. Do you, remember, do you remember what all the prophets said over and over again, the refrain in the prophetic books? If you come from the King James days, you'll you'll know this one. Thus saith the Lord. Right? Over and over and over again. If you're in the more modern translations, it'll be something like the word of the Lord. And they're just describing the prophetic prophetic, uh, ministry. God speaks to the prophet, then the prophet tells God's words, God's truths to the people. Thus saith the Lord. These aren't my words, these are God's words. And with that background, if you you were one of those people who heard Jesus speak and heard this sermon from Peter, and all you knew of God's word was the Old Testament, and you'd read the prophets, and you thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, and then you pick up John's gospel in John chapter 1, what does John say? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And that ought to click in your mind. This is the mother load. Take it out of your back pocket now. All these clues, all these little pieces of shiny truths of God muddled up in the mud and rocks and streams of life. Now we've got to the pure source. 
the word from which all those prophetic words came is Jesus Christ. He fulfills the prophets in that he is the source of their words. He is the substance. He is the thing that they've been talking about and pointing towards. The mother of all prophets. If you want to put it in slang. But then let's think about some of the things Jesus said. Jesus uh, made parables about the kingdom. What did he say? The kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price. Well, what did those gold miners do? Likely B.C. They found the gold doesn't go any further in the rivers than here. They went back to Vancouver. They sold their home. They sold everything. And they went up to Likely in Barkerville and searched for that treasure. They felt it was worth everything. Now that's a small treasure compared to what we have in Jesus Christ. But that's what Jesus is talking about. Just a little bit further on, in John chapter 1 still, John said this, The word became flesh, that is, the source of all the word, the source of all the truth, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the word he used for dwelt is the same word used for tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And if you're a Jewish person steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, your, your mind immediately goes back to Sinai where the tabernacle was set up, to last week's message with the, with the whole thing about the Day of Atonement and all of that. And you realize what John is saying is that he's not just the faithful high priest. He's the truthful prophet. He is, what did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus isn't just a word of truth. He is the truth that the prophets have been bringing through all these days. He's the source and he's the end. He fulfills the prophets in terms of being the source of their words, but he also fulfills the prophets in terms of being the one who brings their ministries to an end because it's no longer needed. He fulfills what they were doing. So there's no longer a need for prophets. Moses was the first because the people rejected a direct relationship with God. And Jesus is the last because he provides that direct relationship. Restores it. He fulfills what it was all about in all those years in between. No wonder the roads and back alleys and living rooms around Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Galilee and Nazareth were abuzz with the question, is this the one? Is this the prophet? Because it's such good news when he is, that he is. Now, of course, it means nothing to us if we don't know how to apply it to our lives today. What do we do with this information? How do we live if this is true, if we believe it? I've decided this morning, instead of me trying to explain it all to you, I'm just going to give it to you in Jesus' own words because he explains it to us. If you have a Bible like this one here with red letter edition, the words of Jesus in red letters, you soon, soon discover that the, the, the discourse of the um, 
you know, the Sermon on the Mount, forgot the word for a minute there. The Sermon on the Mount is chapters of red letters. And then here in John 14, where Jesus describes the coming of the Holy Spirit, is again, pages of red letters. The two large discourses where Jesus gives a large body of teaching. And so I'm going to read how Jesus describes the relationship and how we have this new relationship with God that is predicated not on a prophet in between us, but direct access. I'm going to read um, a portion from a portion from John 14 and then all of John 15. It's a long passage, but I think it's better to hear how Jesus describes it than for me to try to describe it in my own words. Because this is the truth. This is how he told his disciples it would be after he's gone. When I'm finished reading, uh, Jennifer will come up for a benediction. And directly after that, uh, those who are members can come to the front uh, for our congregational meeting. It will be a short meeting, but we ask you, if you are a member, to join us for that. And uh, so let's listen. You might want to follow on the screen. You might want to follow in your Bible. Or maybe just close your eyes and hear the words of God as he describes to you how this relationship works. When we no longer need a prophet in between. John 14, I'm going to start in verse 15. (laughs) Kids are watching videos. Let's begin. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me, because I live. You also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them He is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. I'm going to move now to chapter 15 and verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him... He will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. 
If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fill, fulfill what was written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who goes out from the father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Now I am going to him who sent me. Yet yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. It It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you, what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why 
I said, the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Amen. I'll close with this passage from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And for a few verses down in verse 17, it says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You are dismissed.